This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Education, part of the New Books Network podcast. My name is Alice Garner and I'm a host on the channel and I'm delighted today to be interviewing Kate Henley Averett, who has recently published a book with NYU Press called The Homeschool Choice, Parents and the Privatisation of Education. Um, Kate, let's jump straight in. Uh, the book was fascinating on many levels, um, partly because you delve into uh, the reasons why particular people, individuals and families choose homeschooling, but also you look at it from um, a sort of social and political uh, perspective and and make some quite big and bold claims about homeschooling, which I think people will find really fascinating. I'm based in Australia where homeschooling is growing in popularity but uh, nowhere near to the extent that it has um, developed in the US. So it's interesting for us to kind of have a look and see what might emerge or what are the the contexts in which homeschooling uh, could grow in this way and what are the things we should be looking out for or, or worried about. Um, so I might uh, begin by asking you to tell us a little bit about the work that you do, um, where you're based at the moment, and what led you to the research that informs the book. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so I am um, currently an assistant professor in the sociology department at the university at Albany, which is part of the State University of New York system. Um and I'm also affiliated with the Department of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies here as well. And the work that I do sort of broadly revolves around um, questions related to gender and sexuality and childhood and the family. And I'm particularly interested in how uh, how cultural beliefs about childhood sort of relate to how we understand and do uh, parenting and education. And so 
that was sort of what led me to to thinking about homeschooling is that I was um, I knew that homeschooling was a practice in the United States that had uh, started out sort of or grown out of I should say um, the uh, as a practice and pop grew in popularity I guess out of the religious right um, and so it was something that. I grew up associating with a sort of very conservative religious perspective. Um, and I had sort of started to notice in the early years when I was in graduate school to notice more people who self-identified as liberals and progressives talking about homeschooling. And I found that really interesting um, that people who were self-identified feminists, uh, who were maybe queer parents or parents of LGBTQ children, were talking about homeschooling as something that they were thinking about doing or that they were opting to do. Um, in part, I think I saw this as people were talking about it sometimes as being a way to sort of protect LGBTQ youth from a sometimes hostile school environment. Um, and so I found that to be really interesting because I was, you know, I understood the sort of more conservative religious position as being in part about protecting kids from being exposed to more liberal beliefs about sexuality um, and gender. And so I was, I really thought it was a sort of a fascinating uh, paradox almost that these people with very different beliefs um, about, about gender and sexuality might be coming to the same practice. So that's really what motivated, um, motivated this study. You, um, you give a bit of an overview of, of, homeschooling in the US, um, both sort of how it evolved in those different, uh, particularly the earlier um, development that is what you initially associated it with and, and often a kind of desire to, I think, maintain some control over um, the child's development and worldview away from what was perceived to be uh, an undesirable approach in public education. So what what you do in the book is kind of explore the homeschooling experience and, and choices as well as how public school is seen and how it has changed over time. So I'm interested in, in that tension and perhaps um, also what your own educational experience was. Did you go to a public school? Did you know children who were being homeschooled as you were growing up? Yeah, yeah. So homeschooling really, um, you know, when I started researching it, I realized that even though my perception of it was that it was only something that had been done by conservative religious people um, in the early years, I, it turns out I was wrong about that in, in terms of the stereotype that that is the case. But um, but in reality, homeschooling has kind of always included people from sort of both the left and right wings um, of beliefs about education and sort of more political beliefs as well. Um, but it was really popularized um, by folks on the religious right. And and I think it that, that came about um, as part of an interesting sort of constellation of factors, one of which was in relation in um, in response to uh, school desegregation efforts in the U.S. So in response to efforts to to really integrate schools racially, um, 
that is when, when we sort of started to really see a rise in homeschooling among folks on the right. Um, my own experience was I went to public schools um, growing up all the way through, um, uh, you know, all the way through high school. And, but I did know people who were homeschooled. So um, we had a couple of different families in my neighborhood who, um, who went to the same church of the same sort of, um, a, it was a non-denominational sort of conservative Protestant Christian church uh, who I babysat for. I babysat for uh, my sisters and I babysat for a lot of families in our neighborhood growing up. And I babysat for these families who homeschooled their kids. So that was really my first introduction to it as, um, as a teen was through these families in my neighborhood who were homeschooling. Um, and then I, I didn't really know others, you know, my own age who were homeschooled in part because most of the people I knew growing up were people from school, right? Um, that's where my, the majority of my peer network came from. Um, so it wasn't really until, uh, until later on, like I said, when I was in grad school, I started to become more aware of this primarily through social media, uh, through contact with folks on social media who were homeschooling. How did you decide uh, your approach to the research? How were you going to find out about these different communities that had, had made that decision to homeschool? Yeah, so I'm primarily trained as a qualitative researcher. And so I knew um, I knew from the get-go that I really wanted to talk to parents who were homeschooling, that that to me was a really important way to, to sort of access this population and to really understand um, the ways that they were making meaning out of their practices um, and out of the decision to homeschool. So I knew when I first started thinking about this project that um, in-depth interviewing was going to be a, a really large component of the project. Um, I also knew that there wasn't a whole ton of research on homeschooling. I mean, there are definitely some, some really fantastic works by some great uh, researchers, but there's not there's not a ton of data. It's definitely not a topic that there's really, you know, sort of a saturated amount of data on. And so I also thought that it, there might be some things that might need some sort of quantitative capturing as well. Um, and so I, I sort of thought about methodologically that it might be interesting to combine a few different methods to sort of get at different aspects of, um, of the questions I was asking. So I actually did um, a survey to start with um, that I developed myself and, and sort of put on the internet and, and sent to um, different homeschooling groups and listservs. Um, and then from that um, was able to recruit people to be, to be interviewed as well. Um, and then in, in addition to that, I did um, a series of, I attended a series of uh, conferences as a sort of a participant observation um, uh, component to the project as well. Um, I attended five different conferences put on by different four different groups um, in the state of Texas. So all of the all of the research um, that I did was all in the state of Texas, which is where I was in, in grad school at the time. Um, Actually, Texas tell me, is, yeah, I was going to say that there's something special about Texas in this in this area, yeah. right? Yeah. So in the U.S., um, education is largely um, done state by state, 
right? And so states are responsible for their own sort of education regulation and education standards. And so homeschooling is is legal in all 50 states in the US, but it looks, it the regulation is somewhat different um, because that's done by the state. So Texas is among the, the few states that where it is the easiest to homeschool, where there's the fewest regulations. And I felt like this made it kind of an ideal place to study homeschooling, especially to be asking questions about the diversity of homeschooling um, and of homeschoolers and of their motivations to homeschool. Because I my thinking on this was that if, um, if somebody is thinking about homeschooling, say they're just considering it, and they live in a state um, like New York, where I currently live, where there's really high regulation of homeschooling. And they look up, you know, what do I need to do to homeschool my child? And they see, for example, okay, I need to, you know, submit uh, various things about my curriculum to somebody to be approved. I might need to have regular uh, standardized testing of my child. There might need to be other sort of review of my practices. That might scare me off, right? It might cause me to think twice about, is this something I'm really committed to doing? Um, whereas in a state like Texas, where there's very little regulation, I might look up, what do I need to do to homeschool my child? And I might find out, basically, I just need to withdraw them from public school. And that's that. Um, homeschooling in Texas is homeschools are, are classified as private schools, and there's very little regulation of private schools in the state of Texas as well. Um, and so there are some rules around, you know, children need to be taught um, math and reading and um, good citizenship and a few other things, but there's no um, mandated testing, there's no mandated uh, review of curricular materials or anything like that. And so I figured that in a state like Texas, there would be likely to be people um, who are very committed sort of on an ideological level to homeschooling, but also people who might just be trying it out and who aren't sure yet um, if it's something that they want to do forever or, or if it's, you know, really what is working best for them, um, as opposed to in a state with higher regulation, where I think you might be more likely to get the, the sort of diehard uh, people who are diehard committed to it, but fewer of the people who are less so. So you were living in Texas at the time as a, as a graduate student. Yeah. And once you'd done the survey and you'd started to um, approach people for interviews and, and go to the conferences, were you mixing it up? I mean, were you sort of moving between the more religious groups and the maybe the unschooling community or or did you look at them kind of in isolation from each other? No, I was definitely mixing it up. I um, I knew that I wanted to, to have a mix of people um, represented in the people I interviewed. So what I did was I recruited um, interviewees from the, the sample of um, people who took the survey. So I knew kind of in advance how they rated themselves uh, politically and also in terms of their level of religiosity. And so I really tried to um, 
to make sure I was interviewing people who were sort of self-identified as conservative, as liberal, and as moderate, and also people who were religious and people who were non-religious. Um, and so, but but largely the way I did it sort of over time was geographical. So Texas is a very big state uh, geographically, and um, I wanted to talk to people who were not just in the state capital of Austin, where I was living, um, because Austin is sort of thought to be a pretty progressive uh, area of the state. And so I, I sort of started out talking to people who were closer by um, to me geographically, but then I also did a couple of trips to other parts of the state. Um, so I, I tried to interview people who were sort of geographically near each other all at the same time uh, in order to just sort of logistically make things work. Um, so I would sometimes, you know, in the same day, interview two people in the same town, but who had, you know, sort of very different uh, perspectives and approaches on homeschooling. As for the conferences, um, the majority of the conferences were religious and and conservative. So three of the five were put on by explicitly uh, fundamentalist Christian organizations. One of the five was was done by a conservative Catholic organization. And so then only one of them was a non-religious conference, which was a, a conference for unschoolers who, you know, not all unschoolers are necessarily liberal to progressive, but most are. Mm. Some your descriptions of some of the conferences were quite extraordinary. I mean, particularly looked at through a sort of gender lens um, and the kind of roles that were being uh, assigned to, you know, young people or, or that mm -hmm. were being sort of promoted. Um, yes. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that and, and, and link that to some of your observations about what homeschooling might mean in that kind of um, gender space. Yeah, so um, so particularly in the more conservative religious conference spaces, um, there was a lot of of discussion of gender. Um, maybe I don't know if the people who were putting on the conferences would necessarily say that that is an explicit goal, but it's something that came up a lot in terms of um, both parents and children, and I think that's because this sort of more fundamentalist Christian worldview is very gendered in terms of the roles of um, people in the family, in terms of the sort of centrality and the importance of a sort of complementarian understanding of gender. Um, so there was a lot of, of talk about the roles of parents that were very gendered, where mothers were seen as the sort of the parents who were primarily responsible for homeschooling children, um, whereas fathers were responsible for overseeing that effort. Um, there was a metaphor that got used several times where they talked about fathers, mothers being the teachers, but fathers being the principals of the homeschool. Um, so sort of the more administrative side versus the hands-on side. Um, but there was also a lot about children that was really gendered, that um, there were often, you know, there were some sessions that were um, specifically about sons or about daughters, um, where 
you know, there was talk about sort of raising sons to be future leaders in their families and in their churches and in the world and raising daughters to be future wives and mothers and the sort of different uh, skills that you might need to impart to children based on those, those different roles that they might have in the future. Um, there was this, you know, constant sort of unspoken expectation, of course, that children would grow up to be in heterosexual uh, marriages, right? That that was the goal and the norm. Um, and that that part of the, the, the goal of homeschooling, right? And the goal of raising children more broadly in these communities is to raise children for these future um, heterosexual parents, to be heterosexual parents. Um, and so I think, you know, what that sort of says to me, what, what I sort of took away from all of that was just how, um, how gendered and specifically sort of heterosexualized the space of a homeschooling family could be um, if that family sort of subscribes to this particular worldview. Um, and, and just sort of how normalized that was within these spaces um, in which, you know, the families who, um, who are sort of conservative religious homeschoolers tend to spend a lot of time with other families who are conservative religious homeschoolers. Um, there's a sort of a stereotype that homeschoolers are just at home all the time and isolated from everyone else. And I think while that might be true for some people, largely homeschoolers spend a lot of time out in the world. Um, and a lot of, especially in cities um, or even, you know, medium-sized towns, a lot of these homeschoolers will belong to homeschooling co-ops um, or uh, other sort of organizations um, where homeschoolers get together for social events or learning events or field trips or what have you. And, um, and so there's sort of, a way in which a lot of these children were, I think, being raised in families and communities where this was was so completely normalized, right? Without maybe alternative perspectives being introduced in other in other ways through peers, through school, and things like that. Um, and I think you know there was a lot of emphasis from the parents that I interviewed who were conservative religious homeschoolers on shaping their children's behavior towards. Um, this this ultimate goal of being um, being in these these types of uh, families as adults. You you made some interesting observations about the different views of of childhood development that you saw in in uh, the if you look at the sort of two main categories of of homeschoolers or homeschooling communities. Could you talk about that a little? Yeah, I felt like um, what I saw when I compared specifically the more um, the more conservative um, religious homeschooling families on the one hand with the more progressive families who were many of them, though not all of them, unschoolers, which unschooling for people who aren't familiar with that practice, with that term, is a form of, of homeschooling in which um, it's very sort of child-led, informed by um, sort of progressive education beliefs and or critiques. Um, 
where children are are choosing what they want to learn, when they want to learn it. You're not sort of sitting with a, a curriculum or sitting down to do school at a specific time of day, but there's a lot of learning through play and learning through doing, a lot of children sort of following their own interests and passions. Um, and so it's a very, very different from a, a more highly structured um, homeschool setup, which is more common amongst the, um, the religious parents. Um, so anyway, I saw when, when comparing these two groups, it seemed like there were really two different understandings of childhood, where for one group, um, these parents tended to be kind of worried about, um, about gender and sexuality in public schools and in the world more broadly being too liberal, where, where um, these where schools were kind of a threat to children's innocence, their sexual innocence. Um, and then on the other hand, these parents who saw schools as sort of overly um, conservative as, as promoting a really narrow understanding of gender and sexuality and maybe encouraging conformity to social norms too much. Um, and so I, I argue in the book that there are these two different understandings of gender and sexuality correspond to two different um, ideologies of childhood. So one that where they see children um, as sort of in process, as not yet full selves, and that the parents' role is to guide their children's development towards um, a sort of specifically, um, sort of a specific future that involves uh, heterosexuality and what is considered sort of moral um, behavior or good character is a term they used a lot to describe this. Um, and then on the other hand, parents viewing children as sort of already people, as already selves, who children as being people who have agency, who have autonomy, who already sort of have a sense of self or an identity that might be still waiting to be discovered, but it isn't something that the parents have a whole lot of say in, um, in shaping. Um, and that, you know, I really saw that, that these two different ways of thinking about childhood and who children are corresponded with two different ways of approaching homeschooling. Mm. Yeah, I was really interested by that observation and it was kind of a surprising one in a way, um, you know, in some ways. Um, yeah, yeah. And so thinking about, you know, in the interviews, I mean, one of the fascinating parts of the book was that you, you do give space to the stories of families and and their decisions. Um, and there's actually often quite a lot of common ground, uh, but then areas where there are extreme differences, of course, too. So I'm just sort of curious about, about how you experienced that through that interviewing process um, and if perhaps you know the, the families that maybe had very different um, sort of political and or uh, religious beliefs to you whether um, it, it seemed to me you were able to sort of cross those boundaries through a sort of appreciation of of why they might have been making choices that they did um, but I, I yeah I'd like to hear you reflect on that yeah I mean I think I I find interviewing to just be 
really fascinating and and honestly a lot of fun. Um, I really love talking to people about their lives and their experiences. And so I tried to really just appreciate the experience for me, for myself. Um, but I also, I loved being sort of surprised by sometimes um, the commonalities in what parents would say, even parents who might, you know, describe themselves very differently from each other, who might see each other as as having very little in common outside of homeschooling. Um, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is the the way that so many of the parents describe their children as unique as a learner and how homeschooling is a way um, not just to to sort of uh, best serve children more broadly, but to best serve their specific child as a learner. And that was something that came up in so many of the interviews from people of, you know, across the political spectrum. Um, another commonality was in the um, the centrality of the role of mothers for um, homeschoolers. The vast majority of the people I interviewed were mothers. Um, and that's because the vast majority of the people who do the work of homeschooling are mothers. Um, and so that was another thing that that sort of had commonality across these interviews. But I think, you know, I think that that isn't to say that all of the interviews were easy to do. Sometimes uh, things came up in the interviews that were really difficult for me to hear, um, and especially in terms of parents, um, you know, having very explicitly um, anti-feminist or anti-queer sentiments expressed during the interviews and that could be really tough sometimes to sit and and listen to and sort of not along with um I felt like most of the parents I talked to it seemed to me like they assumed I agreed with them about their perspectives which I thought was really interesting that that was sort of the assumption given that there is uh sometimes a distrust of scholars amongst particularly people on the right, um, a distrust of higher education. And, um, and so I did sort of worry that people on the right might not be interested in talking to me. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so I, I thought I found that sort of surprising that so many people seemed to, uh, anticipate that I would agree with them. And I didn't, you know, I didn't openly disagree with them on things. I wasn't there to, to be um, hostile or to push back. I really was there to learn from them. And so I tried to sort of take that stance. Um, but yeah, there were some really fascinating moments in the interviews of when it came to both the differences and the commonalities. One of my favorite experiences doing this research was I, like I said earlier, I did two interviews one time on the same day in the same town um, where the, the one was with a, a mom who was was religious and conservative. Um, the other was with uh, uh, a mother and father together who were more liberal. And they both described the same event, something that had happened in their school system um, in the town they lived in, mm. uh, but from very different perspectives. They were both very critical. The event was that um, that at the time, then President Obama was going to be giving a speech about education and schools, and the the school district was going to broadcast it, like the students were going to sit and watch it on TV, and they sent home permission slips for parents to sign to let their kids watch this speech. Um, 
And the, the more conservative mom was horrified at this because she felt like this was um, political indoctrination of children and that, that they, there was an agenda to indoctrinate children into President Obama's um, worldview. And she didn't think that, that this had a place in schools. Um, and then the parents, the more liberal parents were horrified that permission slips were sent home for this. They felt like this was something that parents should not need to weigh in on, that that the, the sitting president speaking about education was something of historical importance, of sort of current events importance, and that, of course, it's relevant to children's education. And so why why would they feel the need to let parents opt out of that? Um and it was just such a fascinating experience to have that happen on the same day. And it wasn't, you know, in relation to a specific question I posed, they both just happened to bring up that same, uh, that same example as an example of something they didn't like about their public school districts. Mm. Which raises that big question of, of what does the student's citizenship education look like at home or political exactly. education exactly mm. yeah and I don't you know I don't necessarily know the answer to that um since that wasn't something that I was specifically asking about you know I didn't ask a ton about their curricular materials or anything like that but I do think it it raises some really important questions when and and the thing I was thinking more of with the project was when children aren't exposed to um, diversity of um, of ideas, but even more so diversity amongst the people they interact with. Um, if they aren't interacting with people who come from diverse backgrounds, if they aren't interacting with people who are members of the LGBTQ community um, or people who might have LGBTQ parents, um, and are being raised, you know, in such a way that 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 certain facts about the world are sort of cut off from them. What does that do for how they're what they see as the sort of possibilities for their lives, but also how they see themselves fitting into the larger society? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Mm. And given the, the numbers that are now homeschooling, that it actually is a, a big question, isn't it? How this might shape the society that that emerges in the coming years. Have you got the numbers at your fingertips of, of how many roughly at least as far you as? You know, I, at the time that I was writing the book, the number, it was around 2 million in the U.S. Um, I do know that we've seen an increase um, in homeschooling since the pandemic started in the U.S. And I don't actually know what those numbers are um, exactly. I'm not sure if they their you know, national data has been published. Um, I know that there was um, an increase in New York State in the sort of 2020-2021 academic year. Um, 
that seemed to be related to the pandemic to people keep, you know, opting to homeschool rather than send their kids to school during the pandemic. And there was sort of an, an open question about whether that's something that would come back down um, or if there would be people who would stick with it. And it seems like um, there, there is still um, some of those people, at least who homeschooled have continued to do so. Um, I think, I don't know that the data exists yet on exactly how many, but I think there's definitely been, been an increase. Um, that will be interesting to watch over the next little yes. while, won't it, to see? Absolutely. It absolutely will. And I do also think, you know, part of, of what I argue in the book is that, you know, homeschooling, because of the rise of of school choice as the sort of central way of thinking about education, at least in the United States, that homeschooling has become sort of a logical um, option for a lot of parents when faced with a, a bunch of different issues, whether that is that they don't feel like their kids' disabilities are being adequately um, accommodated in school, or whether they feel like their kid is being bullied, or that, you know, that they disagree with how sex ed is being taught, right? A lot of different um, parents that I talked to had a lot of different sort of issues that sort of pushed them into homeschooling. Um, but I think that the the rise of homeschooling and the rise of the diversity of reasons why people are homeschooling really shows the way that this has become um, something that of a logical uh, option for parents to consider. And so I'm not surprised that the pandemic has led to such an increase. I also think that there might be other things going on currently um, in the U.S. context that might also be leading to increases um, in homeschooling. For example, um, there's been a lot of attention to um, pushes to ban a lot of books in um, in schools in the U.S. right now, books that are primarily related to um, race and written by, um, you know, Black and Indigenous and other people of color authors. Also, a lot of the books are LGBTQ um, oriented and written by LGBTQ authors. So there's been sort of this um, this increased attention to the content of what's being taught in schools and what's being not just taught in classes, but just being offered in school libraries, what's available to kids um, that I think I could picture based on, on you know, what my respondents for the book had said, I could picture parents who are worried about there being, you know, these things in their own schools opting to homeschool. And I could picture parents who are concerned about certain books not being available and the, and they're concerned about things being taken out of schools, opting to homeschool as a result. Um, similarly, there's been a lot of um, sort of uproar over, you know, what folks on the right are referring to as critical race theory being taught in schools, which is, is not quite an accurate <laughs> description of what is taught, but this idea that, that teaching about racism um, and the history and present of racism in the U.S., is something that shouldn't be done in schools. Um, and, and there have been, you know, bills passed in various states relating to this that I could see both, again, both conservative parents who are concerned about what's being taught around race, pulling their kids out and homeschooling, as well as, you know, parents in these states where these bills have passed who think that kids should be taught about racism um, 
also pulling their kids. I could see that. I don't know if we have data yet on, on whether that's happening, but I certainly think it's a possibility um, that, that folks on sort of both sides of, the, of these debates might turn to homeschooling as an alternative to public school as a result of what is going on. Mm. And well, on that note, let's let's look at a bit more at the the public school and and what's happened to it in the last few decades. Because I think you um, you talk about in as a sort of context for the whole the language of school choice, um, what has been done to the public education system. So I think that's a really, you know, and I was interested in the way that you kind of, in a sense, started with the stories and then slowly we we start to get more of a picture of the kind of systemic um, changes that have played into this. So perhaps you could talk about that. Yeah. So in general, in the United States, um, we have moved away from a more common school model, this idea that that you know, all children should generally be taught the same things in school to a school choice model, which presupposes that competition amongst schools is good for um, education, that that offering, if schools offer sort of different strengths um, and, and families are allowed to choose which schools their kids go to, that that will increase the um, quality of the sort of product of education across the board if schools feel like they have to compete with each other for uh, for students. And so it really is um, a very market-based um, understanding of education, so putting it in very sort of economic terms, which is why I, I, I think of this um, under the larger umbrella of neoliberalism, of this sort of way of thinking about every aspect of, of society in these economic terms. Um, and so the result of this is that parents have grown accustomed to considering where their children should go to school um, more so now than in the past where it was, you know, generally assumed that your child would go to the neighborhood school unless you were choosing a private school as an alternative. Um, now there's we've seen in the U.S. a, a real growth in charter schools, in um, magnet schools, and sort of alternate um, alternative ways of doing of doing public schooling, um, as well as you know districts having school choice policies where kids can opt to go to a school other than their neighborhood school where they would be normally assigned. Um, and so I I think that this is a really important context for understanding homeschooling. Um, and this is something that really, you know, largely came out of the data for me. It wasn't, it, this wasn't something I sort of came into the project necessarily theorizing as being really central, but I noticed how much the people I was interviewing talked about choice and used the language of choice in the interviews. Um, even to the point where the, a parent might say, you know, this is why I chose this and I chose it for these reasons. And, and in part, they say, I chose it because I felt like I had no other choice, right? Things were so bad in other ways that I had no other choice. And I, that came up in a few different interviews, um, this idea of not having any choice. And so, and so having to choose this. Um, and it, I realized just how much this, this sort of neoliberal 
concept, right, of parents being responsible for choosing the um, the education that's best for their specific child. Um, how much that had just infiltrated the thinking of of parents to the point that it was it had become common sense. Um, and so I really think that that it's crucial to understand homeschooling as part of this larger constellation of of processes by which um, parents are being tasked with managing their kids' education in sort of increasingly um, intensive ways. Yeah, and and I suppose that that point that if people are taking their children out of public schools and the government can frame it as this is their choice, therefore, you know, why would we continue to fund public schools at at a certain rate if people are choosing to take their children elsewhere you know this is terrible loop yes exactly and and there's a an opportunity for increased divestment um, from public education even as that divestment from public education may be part of what motivated some of these parents to begin with Mm. it's um it's a bit of a mess, actually. That isn't it. I mean, we've got a version of that in Australia. It's a it's a it's a slightly different system, but um, some of the same uh, debates going on, and and you know, it's the the whole idea of choice when you are constrained geographically, apart from anything else, you know, is mm-hmm. is um, quite problematic. Um, the other thing that you you talk about. Um, and this relates to the extent to which government is seen as able to deliver an education that is suitable for, well, perhaps for people's, you know, unique children. Um, But maybe you could elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that there is... um a certain degree of distrust of government more broadly in the United States. But I think that the fact that we, um, that our, our, our government system is very confusing (laughs) and there's so many different levels to it and layers to it with state government and local government and national, you know, federal government, um, that kind of fosters that distrust as well. Um, and so I really think, you know, one of the things that I found really fascinating was this way in which there seemed to be a large distrust of government, or as I call it, having given up on the government um, by people on, you know, on the left and on the right and more central, you know, more centrist um, parents that I interviewed, that there is this idea that, you know, on the right, for example, there were this idea that the government shouldn't be trusted to teach children because um, families are are the ones who really should be in charge of children's upbringing. Um, whereas on the left, there was sort of a, a broader belief in public education sort of in theory, um, but a lack of trust in the government to actually make it work in practice. Um, and so I think that there, there seemed to be a surprising to me uh, convergence there in terms of whether people trusted that, that this could work. Um, one of the really common things that came up was surrounding um, education reforms that have happened 
over the last couple of decades in which there's been really a big increase in um, reliance on standardized testing in schools. And that this is something that, you know, these reforms have um, happened through, um, you know, administrations that were on the left and on the right. Um, it's not something that is really associated with one or the other political party in the U.S. And yet it was critiqued by parents on both the left and the right who I interviewed, um, who really seemed to think that, you know, standardized testing was not very useful, that it caused um, children to be taught how to test and not to be taught how to think. Um, and that that it really, this increase in testing was sort of, sort of, I think, a stand-in for um, a larger critique of, of, you know, is the government capable of actually reforming education to the point that it is giving children what they need? Even while parents disagreed on what that is that children need, they agreed that it was not happening in the current, you know, the current way that education is done. And so there was a, a that was a, a really strikingly common sentiment. Mm. And so, and, and in a sense, the standardized tests that are supposed to be used to provide the data to indicate whether a school is uh, up to scratch mm-hmm. is then used also in the, the sort of choice equation, isn't it? So, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and that was something that, that parents... Um, you know, the, the parents who are kind of more in the middle politically who might not have been homeschooling for these sort of explicitly ideological reasons um, cited, several of them, you know, cited this whole idea of, you know, like, well, you look at the schools in our area and they get very bad. Um, they're rated really poorly, right? Um, they just aren't very good schools. And so there is this sense that that if the schools aren't great, then homeschooling is a is an alternative. And so the there is this sort of interesting feedback where the these education reforms that are themselves, you know, the product of a neoliberal approach to education where we can sort of make everything a, a sort of a quantitative measure um, that have let that has what has led to the increase in um, standardized testing, right, as a, a way of of having these metrics to measure whether schools are working or not um, has also caused people to divest from schools. And so these parents are critiquing the use of standardized testing while at the same time they're relying on the standardized testing metrics to make mm. their decisions. Mm. Let's let's go to, to the last um, chapter where you talk about motherhood um well, you did mention earlier about the, the sort of gendered nature of you know it was mostly mothers doing the homeschooling perhaps occasionally a father having a sort of <laughs> principal role <laughs> which makes me laugh but um i i i thought you had some really interesting observations about what it actually means to run homeschooling and what sacrifices are involved for the women who make that whether we call it a choice or find themselves in that situation yeah so overwhelmingly like i said the the parents who are doing the the bulk of the day-to-day work tend to be mothers um 
you know, there, there are some exceptions. Everybody who I spoke to seemed to know or know of a family in which the dad was the primary homeschooling parent. Um, but only a couple of the families that I interviewed the parents um, had the dad as sort of a more central uh, homeschooling parent. And in those, neither of them were the only one homeschooling. They were sort of sharing it um, with their wives. And so, um, you know, I think homeschooling is hard. It's a lot of work. Um, even for unschooling parents who might not be spending time, you know, lesson planning at the start of the week, um, it still requires supervision of the children, right? Um, it requires a sort of a intensive level of, of parenting. And, um, and so it, that it requires sacrifices, right? A lot of the mothers who I interviewed um, left the labor force or at least left it sort of mostly. Um, so a few were still um, in the paid labor force part-time. A very few were still working full-time. I did actually talk with a few single mothers who were homeschooling. And so we're um, making some some really difficult and interesting ways of arranging their their day-to-day -day lives so that they could figure out how to both homeschool and um work but how could um, actually could you how did they manage that was it that they would work at night or they'd work during the day and homeschool at night yeah i think it there were a few different configurations um one that i can think of worked from home and so she was able to kind of um you know, work and homeschool sort of somewhat simultaneously. Um, another worked, um, I think, later in the day and her um, her mother lived with her and helped take care of the kids. Um, another sort of hired a, um, a, a neighbor to watch her child during the day while she worked. And then they did most of the homeschooling after her work hours. Um, I mean, in all cases, it sounded pretty exhausting for the parents, um, a lot of work. Um, but I think, you know, these particular parents felt like it was that important that they made it work. Um, but yeah, for the most part, it was, it required a, a certain financial sacrifice for the whole family, right? Where in, in the context of the U.S. where it's very difficult to, for most people, most families to live on only one income, um, but particularly for mothers who are leaving the labor force and therefore, you know, may have difficulty re-entering once their kids are older. And, um, you know, one, one mom that I spoke to in particular, I think of her a lot. She talked about how she had always planned to go back to work. She was a scientist, um, and really loved her work and she'd always planned to go back to work, but she felt like after a certain point, um, of homeschooling that she realized that she had had somewhat inadvertently uh, sort of cut herself off from a lot of the opportunities that she had been out of the paid labor force for so long that she wasn't up to date on the technology that was being used in her field. And, and she really felt like she couldn't re-enter the field, the same field she'd been in. And she hadn't really done that on purpose. Um, it was sort of a default thing that had happened. And she had said, you know, her advice now to people who are starting to homeschool is if you can figure out a way to keep your foot in the door, 
professionally, if you can even figure out a way to work, you know, one day a month, somehow keep your, your accreditation or your whatever it is that you need for your professional field up, then you should do so, um, so that you're not cutting yourself off from opportunities later on. Um, I think you made the point too that in a way by choosing to homeschool, often it was it seemed to be, well, for want of a better word, we keep saying choice, <laughs> the choice between being politically active in trying to change the 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 larger system through, you know, whether it's activism in the education area or whatever it might be, versus taking your child or children out and and homeschooling them um and that there there is a, a sort of it's perhaps society's loss in some respects that we don't have mothers who might have been active in other ways i mean when we look at the numbers too that are that are homeschooled absolutely absolutely yeah and i think you know, a lot of the mothers, um, especially those who felt like public school, at least in theory, was a really worthwhile uh, institution, right? They felt like they couldn't make any change. Um, they felt this sort of, they felt like they were, it would be ineffective for them to try and that they, they if they tried to, you know, keep their kids in school and change the system, they would end up failing. Whereas if they took their kids out, it would not help other kids, but at least they could be effective in shaping the education of their own child, right? So I think it really, um, this sense that that they can't make a difference in the community leads them to pull even further back into the family um, and really sort of contain their, their, um, their potential contributions in a way. Um, and I don't want to. I don't want to minimize the contributions that they are making to their families, right? I think it can be easy to sound like I'm just being super critical of these decisions. Um, and I think that you know, for the most part, most parents are every day thinking about what they can do to parent their kids well, right? Um, but I think that the sort of socio-political context is such that parents feel like it is a trade-off they have to make, that they can either parent their kids well or they can make a difference in the community, but that they can't do both. And I think that's really unfortunate. Mm. Now, I notice we're, we're nearly up to an hour, so I don't want to um, uh, work you too hard. <laughs> but uh, perhaps, you know, do you have some final observations, perhaps anything that we haven't touched on that, that, is important for people to know or that you want potential readers to to be aware of? Yeah, I mean, I think that we've really, you know, we've touched on almost everything. Um, <laughs> I would say just sort of the the sort of summary of it all almost, the, the real takeaway point that I think I hope people take from the book is the way in which these sort of neoliberal ideas about choice um, have have really shaped our cultural beliefs in so many ways beyond just what we think about the state and the market, but but how we think about childhood, how we think about families, and that this really um, is then shaping the ways that, that we're sort of culturally thinking about what children need and who should be providing that for children. Um, 
and that it's doing so in ways that is is contributing to and even exacerbating existing inequalities. Um, and and you know, in the book, I focus primarily on inequalities around gender and sexuality, but I think also inequalities related to race and class. Um, and that that I think you know this this way of thinking about children and their education is um, is potentially a problem. Mm. Mm. And and Kate, what are you working on now? Have you moved into uh, are you in related research areas, or have you switched totally? What are you looking at? Yeah, so I'm doing some related work. Um, I actually, you know, I had finished up final edits on the book, um, or or was finishing, I guess, final edits on the book right as COVID started to hit um, in the spring of 2020, and so. Um, at the, as that was happening, a lot of my friends and family members were, um, reaching out to me because they were freaking out at the, the need to sort of be teaching their kids at home, right? Not homeschooling in a sort of classical sense, because a lot of it was remote teaching. Um, but they were freaked out about this sort of, uh, suddenly being sort of forced into homeschooling. Um, and I was really struck by how, you know, I spent all this time talking about, homeschooling and choice. And here we were faced with this moment where kids were being, were learning at home and there was no choice involved whatsoever, right? Um, It was something that was forced upon people and not just a select group, but everybody all at once. And so I, um, I sort of immediately realized that there was something really interesting and important happening. Um, this was, you know, sort of the the few days when they had announced that schools would be closing, but ha- that hadn't actually happened, right? So this sort of a Thursday and Friday, and most of the schools were going to be closed starting on Monday. And so I, I sort of spent that weekend designing a study and uh, putting in my, my IRB ethics approval application. And within two weeks, I had started an interview study. Um, where I was interviewing parents across the U.S. about their experiences with remote learning. Um, so over the course of the next of, of about four months, I interviewed um, over 100 parents across the U.S. about what was going on with remote learning and how they were feeling about it, how they were handling it, um, how this experience was for their families. And I'm kind of currently currently in the process still of, of wading through the, this incredibly rich data um, that I have out of that. I have a couple of publications out um, already from it. One is more of a methods piece where I'm think, you know, thinking through what does it mean to be um, interviewing people about this crisis moment while the crisis is still ongoing and a sort of um, what does it mean to, to take a feminist approach to sort of caring for our respondents through a moment like this where have you published Um, that where is that that is published in um gender work and organizations okay it's the title of the piece is a feminist sociology of the pandemic um and then i have another piece just recently out with um era open um which is the open access journal of the american educational research association um on the experiences of uh parents who have a child with a disability with remote learning and mm. specifically thinking about the, the difficulty of um, providing ac- adequate accommodations and assistance to kids with disabilities 
in remote learning um, and how, you know, how this moment um, of the pandemic has really revealed the ways that schools are sort of built around assumptions about kids' ability mm. um, that, that may end up really doing a disservice to certain more vulnerable groups. That sounds like really important and interesting work. I'm going to go and have a look at those now, or at least I'll... Thank you. <laughs> they're both out. Yeah, they're both available they are, now. Yes. Fantastic. All right. Well, look, on that note, it sounds like you're doing some really interesting things and um, and I urge listeners to read the book too um, because there's a lot more in there, a lot of detail that we, we didn't talk about. We've talked about all the big ideas, but there's a great deal in there that people will find fascinating um, and thought-provoking. Um, so thank you so much, Kate, for agreeing to this interview. Thank you so much. Um, it was really a pleasure to talk with you about, about the book. And I'll say goodbye. <laughs>